0: Good morning, once again. I told Pastor Todd I've never preached behind a glass pulpit. <laughs> so I was always a first for everything. I do bring you greetings from Grace Covenant Church in Cleveland, Ohio. It's so good to be a part with you, holding that same confession of faith, believing on the same Lord Jesus Christ. What a privilege it is. Turn with me in your Bibles this morning, if you would, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. I want us to look in this fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, beginning in verse 17, where Paul writes, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not So learn Christ. As we read through this text of scripture, it's very easy to focus on those characteristics that Paul gives to us of the natural man, what he calls the Gentiles. But I want you to note that the reason he gives us those characteristics of the natural man The reason he speaks of the way the Gentiles walk is so as verse 17 says that you should no longer walk in those ways. Why? Because you have not so learned Christ. Would you bow together with me as we ask God's blessing upon the preaching of his word. Father, what a privilege it is to know that you still today speak to us through your word. And Father, how much we need to hear the voice of your Holy Spirit and not just the voice of a man. Father, you know that the temptation is always before those of us who speak, especially when we come into a new place. To want to impress but Father I pray that you would take away any thought of that that it might be Christ who is lifted up who is exalted Father I pray that as we think through this text of scripture this morning that we would see the futility of life apart from Christ and desire to walk as he himself walked and not in the way of the Gentiles. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, I had the privilege of preaching through Psalm 119 with my congregation. And as I got to the end of that long chapter, that long Psalm, Psalm 119, I noted that David expresses in that Psalm the longing of his soul for the salvation of God. That salvation that we know comes only in the Lord Jesus Christ. And throughout that psalm, David has spoken of the delight that he found in his word. The delight that God gives to those who are his children and that he gives to only those who are his children. I think of that hymn we sang, solid joys and lasting pleasures, only God's children No, David spoke of the life that God promises to those who look in faith to Jesus Christ and his death upon the cross for the forgiveness of their sin. In Psalm 16, David sp- speaks of the promise of the fullness of joy to those who look to him as the one who alone can satisfy the hungering and the thirsting of the souls of men and women. At the end of Psalm 119, David cries out to God to give him life. And he is not speaking here merely of life that never ends. He is not speaking of life in the quantitative sense. He is speaking of life in the qualitative sense. The very life of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You may remember that Jesus in his great high priesthood prayer As he spoke to his father, he said, this is eternal life. This is eternal life. That they know you, the father and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There is no life apart from Jesus Christ. David speaks of life in the sense of all the blessings that God gives to his people. He speaks of life in the sense of that peace that comes from knowing that you are the child of God, that by covenant he has sworn to protect you, to provide for you, for every need that you might have. He speaks of life in the sense of that rightness that we feel within our soul when we are walking in obedience to the commands of God. And God fulfills that longing expressed by David and hopefully expressed by every one of us as he gives his Holy Spirit to us, to his children, so that we may taste here on earth that which we will enjoy in his fullness in eternity. Samuel Rutherford wrote a hymn entitled The Sands of Time Are Sinking. And he wrote these words, The streams on earth I've tasted more deep I'll drink above. There, to an ocean fullness, his mercy does expand, and glory, glory dwells in Emmanuel's land. Now in this second chapter of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul writes, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. What does it mean for a man to be dead in sin and to be made alive in Christ. To be dead in sin means that the life of God that once animated the soul of every man and woman, at that time, Adam and Eve, that life that flowed through them no longer flows through the being of men and women. Man is spiritually dead to the life of God. And as the dead body cannot and does not respond to the voice of one who is alive, so the dead soul does not and cannot respond to the voice of God unless it is brought to life by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. Paul works out the meaning of being dead toward God in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17, and he uses several phrases to do so. He uses the phrase alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Now the word alienated, I think, is a very descriptive word. You know what it means to be alienated from another person. You can feel the hostility that exists When there is alienation there's no relationship that draws the two of you together there are usually angry hard feelings between you and the other person oftentimes when people divorce they will give emotional alienation as the reason for why they are divorcing now that's what the word means here as well there is estrangement between God and man. There is no fellowship. There's no intimacy of any kind with God. And that lack of fellowship and that lack of intimacy with God is what causes a sense of emptiness and dissatisfaction within the soul of every man and woman apart from God. It's an intimacy that Adam and Eve experienced with God before the fall. But when the fall occurred, the life of God departed from the soul of man. Now this fellowship and this intimacy with God is that alone, and I stress the word that alone, which can satisfy the longing heart of every human. Now as a result of that death, the alienation between God and man our confession states that man is totally polluted in all parts and faculties of both soul and body. Let me take just a moment to make a short comment here concerning my use of the confession of faith. There are those who criticize the use of confessions of faith. They argue sometimes that confessions of faith are held above the Bible. In reality, every individual has a confession of faith. Some have written confessions, as we do. Some have unwritten confessions. And I guarantee you, if you are in a situation where they don't have a written confession, you'll find out soon enough, if you go up against their unwritten confession, that they truly do have a confession of faith. I argue for written confessions as opposed to unwritten confessions and as opposed to one page statements of faith because they flesh out the meaning of the words and statements as we will see here in just a moment. Concerning confessions and creeds, Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote these words To say that a creed comes between a man and his God is to suppose that it is not true. For truth, however, definitely stated, does not divide the believer from his Lord. So far as I am concerned, that which I believe, I am not ashamed to state in the plainest possible language. And the truth I hold, I embrace because I believe it to be the mind of God revealed in his infallible word. How can it divide me from God who revealed it? It is one means of communion with my Lord that I receive his words as well as himself and submit my understanding to what I see to be taught by him. Say what he may, I accept it because he says it, and therein pay him the humble worship of my inmost soul. Now this doctrine of man is totally polluted in all parts and faculties of both body and soul. Means that while man may not be as bad in terms of his actions, he is as bad off as he could possibly be. Though he may not commit every sinful action possible, he is capable of every sin possible. Recently I was talking with a man who had spent some time in a correctional institution, not as a guard but as an inmate and he told me that there's a code among prisoners in a correctional institution that classifies the inmates according to what what crime they might have committed. Some are considered more depraved than others because of that particular offense that they might have committed. What they don't want to admit is the reality that they are all the same. Every one of them contain within themselves the potential to offend in the highest and the worst degree, even according to their own code of conduct. Our confession goes on to state that because all men are conceived in sin and are the subjects of death, they are given up to unspeakable miseries. Spiritual, temporal, and eternal. Total depravity, which is what Paul is describing here, total depravity is not just incomparable evil. It is deadness to that lasting joy and the pleasures of God, which are eternal. Man in his natural fallen condition cannot conceive of finding deep and abiding joy and pleasure in God. Such talk makes no sense to him whatsoever because he has lost all ability to reason from a spiritual standpoint. The only thing that makes sense to him is what is physical and material. And this is what Paul means when he says that man is alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in him. And the idea of ignorance is not used here to speak of low mental or intellectual ability. It is used of the knowledge of divine things. It is moral, spiritual ignorance. So rather than seek the higher joys and the pleasures that God says in Psalm 16, 13, are at his right hand. And notice, Christ sits at his right hand. That is where the pleasures of God are to be found. Man instead seeks to fill the emptiness that he feels in his soul with all kinds of lesser joys. C.S. Lewis so poignantly states it, that man plays in the mud puddles of life, making mud pies, when there is a vacation at the seashore of which he is not even aware. Sinful man lives, as Paul states it in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3, in the lust of his flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. In his ignorance, of divine things man cannot imagine that God's favor, God's mercy God's goodness or even the church of God and the fellowship of the saints could possibly bring to his soul lasting joy so he seeks after happiness in the things of this world, in sexual pleasure, in financial exploits even in the more refined taste of music and art and literature it would have been very easy for me in my younger years to have given myself over to seeking after pleasure in music and music alone but thank god he showed me that that is not where ultimate happiness is to be found it's only in christ It's an incredible testimony to the inability of created things to satisfy the human soul that in this nation we have more ways to entertain people than probably any culture that ever lived and yet this nation has shown an ever-increasing growth of emotional problems depression is rampant in our nation even in the midst of great crowds men feel alone Can you imagine sitting in the cotton Bowl, surrounded by thousands of people in that packed stadium and feeling alone? That's what the unregenerate man or woman feels because they are separated from the life of God. Paul says in chapter 4 and verse 17, the unbeliever walks in the futility of his mind having his understanding darkened. He thinks he can bring peace and satisfaction to his soul through temporal, creative things. But only that which is eternal can satisfy the immortal soul of man. Now, it may be that when I speak about finding delight, finding satisfaction, finding joy in the favor and the mercies and the goodness of God, Some might be unable to even understand that idea of delight and satisfaction in God and in His Word instead of the things of this world. It might make no sense whatsoever. You may not be able to understand any kind of happiness other than that which comes from the various entertainments like going to Six Flags over Texas or or to a Texas Rangers or a Dallas Cowboys game. You may not understand any kind of delight or happiness other than that which comes through making money or achieving a promotion. You might think that the height of satisfaction is a relationship with a particular man or a particular woman. The thought of finding satisfaction in your soul, in that which you cannot see, touch, taste, feel, Is like a foreign language to you. And if that is the case. Is it possible? And we need to examine our souls. Is it possible. That you are still in that depraved. Unregenerated position. So you are blind. To the things of God. It is entirely possible. That there is no relationship. Existing between you and God. But only. Alienation. Now if Paul further notes that this alienation from the life of God is due to the blindness that is in them. Depravity is not only incomparable evil. It is not only deadness to true life and joy and happiness. It is blindness to true beauty and glory. The writer Isaiah looking toward the coming of the Messiah into the world. The one who would be the ultimate revelation of the glory of God. Describe man's response to him. When we see him, the prophet writes, there is no beauty in him that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Do you hide your face from that which is beautiful? From that which is glorious? Or do you want to look with longing upon him? The true believer longs for more and more of the glory of Christ. The blindness of which Paul speaks is not the blindness of the physical eyes. It is spiritual blindness brought on by continuous life in darkness. John says that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. There's that creature that lives in total darkness, the darkness of the caves of the earth. You know that I'm talking about bats. They have physical eyes, but they're blind. It makes its way by a type of inherent radar system, but it sees nothing. And so is man who was born in blindness, in darkness, who lives all of his life in spiritual darkness. Men are born in spiritual darkness, blind to the glories of God, blind to the righteousness and holiness of God, blind from his birth. The Apostle Paul comments on this blindness in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, when he says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. Do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon them. I've had the privilege of going to the nation of Chile three times in the past three years. There's a small group of Reformed Baptist churches there that I've had the privilege of ministering to. And one of the epic events in the life of Chile took place a few years ago. 33 Chilean miners were rescued after spending 69 days trapped underground because of a cave in at the copper mine in which they were working. And when they emerged from the darkness, and some of you may remember seeing this on our own national television, they all had to wear very dark sunglasses because of having spent so much time in underground darkness. The sunlight was blinding to them without those dark sunglasses. And though it was difficult for them to emerge into the light, it would have been far, far worse for them to have been left in that mind where they would eventually have gone blind and eventually would have died. Now take careful note that this ignorance in which man lives, this blindness which affects man, is a willing ignorance. A blindness, and it's hard to fathom as Christians, but it's a blindness that the unregenerate man or woman cheerfully and willingly embraces. Can you imagine wanting to be blind? The sadness of man's condition is that he thinks he is wise. He thinks. He can see. He loves the darkness because his deeds are evil, John says. He will not come to the light, John goes on to say, lest his deeds be exposed for the vanity that they truly are. Man truly believes that all the suicidal pleasures of this life, which he pursues, will bring to him satisfaction and happiness. He embraces those pleasures because he cannot imagine anything else. In John chapter nine, the gospel of John chapter nine, Jesus heals a man who was blind from birth. And he uses that healing miracle to demonstrate to the scribes and the Pharisees, the leaders of the Jews, the blindness of their own hearts, the blindness of their souls. Now, intellectually, The Pharisees understood what Jesus was saying, even while morally rejecting his statements. They understood that when he said, I am the son of God, that he was claiming equality with God. There was no doubt in their mind. That's why they tried to stone him for what they called blasphemy. Intellectually, they understood it. But listen to their question in verse 40 of John chapter 9. Are we blind also? And then Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see. Therefore, your sin remains. The interaction with the Pharisees illustrates well, I think, the maxim, that it's difficult to win an argument with an intelligent person. It's even more difficult to win an argument with an ignorant person but it's impossible to win an argument with a willfully ignorant person. It's only when one admits his blindness that he has any hope of seeing. Jesus exhorts the church in Laodicea in the book of the Revelation because they do not know that they are wretched, poor, blind, and miserable, and naked. And so he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. The eye salve of which Jesus speaks is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, that it's the gospel that will open the eyes The glory of Christ and so I ask you again when I speak of the gospel of the glories of Christ are you able to see and comprehend that of which I'm speaking when I speak of valuing the glory of Christ above everything else does that have meaning to you when I speak of setting your eyes on those things that are eternal those things that are good and lovely, do you see them that way? If not, could it be that you're still living in darkness? Do you still value the darkness? Do you spend your time entertaining yourself with the deeds of darkness rather than enjoying the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus? If you do, could it be that you are spiritually blind if you value the deeds of darkness more than the glory of Christ? Could it be that the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ is not yet shown into your heart? And I'm not just speaking of those who are unbelievers, but perhaps you're one who has sat in church, Sunday after Sunday, year after year and yet have no sense of what the glory of Christ is all about. You've never really seen that glory. Your heart yet may need to be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit opening your eyes to that which is of, is of true value. But You see the problem is most of us are blind to what sin Really is. We only think of sin in terms of wicked, vile actions, like the inmates of the prison who think of one crime as more vile than others. But we need to see that the rebellious inclinations of our hearts, our coldness toward the Lord Jesus Christ, our apathy, our lack of interest in the things of God, are just as vile in the sight of God as the actions of the most vile criminal. I had a young lady that I was doing some counseling with some time ago actually make this statement to me. I wish that I would have lived a life of some vile sin so I could understand what sin really is. Listen, if you're raised in a Christian home, thank God that you were not a part of such vile actions. Thank God that He spared you from that. Because you see, what she didn't realize is that her apathy was vile in the sight of God. To see the glory of Christ and turn your head away from it and not care—that's to slap God in the face—and she didn't even realize it. If you're a relatively new believer, you should be aware that it may take some time for your eyes to adjust to the light of God. When I wake up in the morning, I stumble into the bathroom, where I turn on the light, and for the first few moments, until my eyes adjust, I almost want to go back into darkness. But then, as my eyes begin to adjust, I like the light. I don't want to go back into darkness anymore. So as we see more and more of the glory of Christ, we will not want to go back into the darkness. There's an old hymn, some of you may know it. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The Apostle Paul goes on to say, concerning the depravity of man, that it leads to the point where a person is past feeling. In my mind, this is the most scary attribute of the unbelieving man, that he is past feeling. What does Paul mean? The word literally means to become callous or insensitive to pain. If you, for some reason, have become insensitive to pain, you may touch something that is very hot and not know that it has done inconceivable physical damage to you until it's too late. And so it is with a person who continues in his depravity. He loses any sense of the wrongness of sin. Those pricks of conscience which he once felt, he no longer feels. What once brought at least an element of grief and sorrow when committed, now no longer is of any concern at all. And indeed, I have seen people who boast and glory in that which once brought grief and sorrow. What we do not realize, if we do not understand the nature of sin, is that it is an unseen cancer. Eating away at the very fabric of our souls. A few years back, a book was written by a man by the name of Pierre von Passant, entitled That Day Alone. And in that book, he tells the story of a Nazi, of Nazi troops who arrested a Jewish rabbi, forced him to remove all of his clothing, including his wedding ring, bent him over a barrel, and beat him numb with a leather strap. Some, they laughingly said, for Abraham, some for Isaac, and some for Jacob. Then they unfastened him and they set him on display, and the brown shirts arranged themselves, he says, in a semicircle around the table. One walked over with a pair of scissors. He cut off the left side of Rabbi Warner's hair. Then he took hold of the rabbi's beard, and he cut the right side of it away. And then he stepped back. The troopers laughed and they slapped their sides. Say something in Hebrew, the SS captain ordered. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. The rabbi slowly pronounced the Hebrew words. But one of the other officers interrupted him. Were you not preparing your sermon this morning? He asked him. Yes, said the rabbi. Well, you can preach it here to us. You'll never see your synagogue again. We've just burned it to the ground. Go ahead. Preach your sermon, he cried out. All quiet now, everybody. Jacob is going to preach a sermon to us. Could I have my hat? Asked the rabbi. Can't you preach without a hat? The officer asked him. Give him his hat, he commanded. Someone handed the rabbi his hat and he put it on his head. The sight made the SS men laugh for more. The man was naked and he was shivering and he spoke God created man in his image and likeness he said that was to have been my text for this coming son it is hard for me when I read those words to imagine such inhumanity it's hard for me to imagine a man treating another man as the Nazis treated the Jews and having no pangs of conscience about it. But the reason they had no pangs of conscience about it is because they were past feeling. They were so desensitized to their own wickedness that they did not even realize that what they were doing was destroying their very own souls. Brothers and sisters, this is why we must put sin to death. This is why we cannot allow sin to have any foothold in our lives. Paul says in Romans 12 that we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh with all of its lust. The very text that brought St. Augustine to faith in Christ. If you do not put sin to death, whatever sin it may be that you're entertaining in your life it will destroy you it will eat you from the inside out the confession of faith once again speaks to this depravity of man when it says that because of the corruption of this sin man becomes wholly inclined to evil and is able by sin that's what we mean by the total inability of man, Because of the depravity of man's heart, he is unable to correct his wickedness or even to desire to correct his wickedness. Paul says that the carnal mind is enmity against God, unable to please God. It's not just that they will not, even though they won't seek to please God, but they have by their own sinfulness rendered themselves unable to even desire to please God. So it should not surprise you then that to speak of the glory and the beauty of Christ brings looks of disdain or derision when you speak to someone about the glory of Christ and unbeliever. The brave man is unable to see; he's unable to comprehend glory and beauty. It not should not surprise you that unbelievers think that happiness and satisfaction are to be found in this created world and they pursue it relentlessly. And when one thing satisfies for just a short time and then no longer satisfies, they seek it somewhere else. They're unable to think in any other way. They're dead to the life of God, which brings those solid joys. And notice the word lasting pleasures. The writer of Hebrews expresses it well when he talks about Moses forsaking Egypt, choosing rather to be identified with Christ than the pleasure the passing pleasures of Egypt. Until God in his sovereign grace shines the so light of the knowledge the glory of God into the heart of any particular man or woman, he will not see the glory of Christ. Now if you are not a Christian, if you are still in that state of utter depravity, you may be thinking to yourself with, well if I've been rendered unable, if there's nothing I can do, then there's just nothing I can do. And I plead with you, do not think that. Paul says that if you think in that way, if you continue to live according to the lust of your flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, that you are by nature a child of wrath. You stand under the wrath of God. You've chosen to love darkness instead of the glorious light of Christ. You despise the glory of God and it is of greater value than all else. You refuse to turn to Christ as that one who can satisfy the soul choosing instead the mud pies of this world and for that the wrath of God is upon you you've chosen alienation from him instead of the joy of intimacy and fellowship with him you've placed yourself in a position to experience the horror of his wrath being alienated from him throughout eternity so do not say there's nothing I can do Paul spoke to a group of philosophers in Athens, and he told them that God commands all men everywhere to repent. Because, he said, he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, the man Jesus Christ. Your responsibility before God is to bow in humble submission before him, confessing your sin and your depravity, seeking his forgiveness, And trusting him to open your eyes to that which is true glory and true beauty. Trusting him to make you alive to the satisfaction and joy that only he can give. And you can be assured that when you put your trust in Christ in that way, that God will open your eyes. You will no longer live in blindness. Just as surely as Christ opened the eyes of a man who was born physically blind. You will see and understand his glory as you never before understood it. You'll no longer live in ignorance of the delights of joy and satisfaction guaranteed by God through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I would assume this morning that I am speaking to people primarily who have come to know Christ who have seen your sin who have had your eyes open to the glory of Christ so Paul's words that are for you don't walk as the Gentiles walk you've not so learned Christ put those things away live in the light of the glory of Christ don't chase after the things of this world. They're dead ends. They go nowhere. Seek after the pleasures of God that are at His his right hand. Seek it. Seek them. And don't quit seeking those things that are at the right hand of God. From His throne flow rivers of pleasure. Drink deeply from them. Because of that is what you have learned of Christ. Would you pray together? Father, we thank you this morning. That you have opened our eyes to the glory that is in Christ. That you've caused us to see the futility of seeking the things of this world. Father, we see it in our families, so many family members who do not know you, who think that they can find satisfaction for their souls in the things of this world. Father, we know it's a dead end. But Father, when the enemy of our souls tempts us, bring to our mind once again the beauty and the glory of Christ. Cause us to desire Christ more than anything else. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.